Today we're taking a brief pause in our series on the fruits of the Spirit, which the Apostle Paul lists for us in the fifth chapter of his letter to the Galatians, to talk about an issue which he addresses two chapters before that. Paul is writing about the family of God and particularly correcting the issue of division between the Jewish Christians and those who were coming to faith from other nations, known as the Gentiles. And he writes in verse 26 of chapter 3, In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. In God's family, there are to be no divisions based on your nationality or your background. And he goes further, naming some of the other divisions which the Galatian church may not have fully grasped. So in verse 28, he goes on, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He was speaking into some of the divisions of the society of his time, where in that culture, one of each pair of words was privileged over the other. And Paul was saying, Jesus came to change all that. The Jewish people and the non-Jewish people were divided, with the Jews believing that themselves to be superior to the Gentiles. Those of high socioeconomic status were, and positions of power were divided from those who were tragically in servitude, believing themselves to be superior to them. And the sexes were divided, with males believing themselves to be superior to females. All of these issues were deeply ingrained in the culture, systemically reinforced in structures throughout the society of Paul's day. And Paul says, no, no, that is not the way that God intends this to be. You are all children of God in Christ Jesus. No one is of greater value than anyone else. No one is superior to anyone else. And in this short sentence, he confronts three isms. He says, enough of your racism, your elitism and sexism. In God's eyes, you are all equal. And as the world aligns with God's design, and as individuals are embraced into his family, everyone is included with equal status. People don't lose their identity, of course, uh, or their distinctiveness when in Jesus they become one. They remain Jews, Gentiles, males, females and so on. But the dividing walls of hostility and inequality between them are eradicated. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the Apostle John saw a vision of what heaven is going to be like the culmination of history and everything restored to how God intended. We find this in chapter 7 of Revelation and verse 9. I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne. The church with all its colour and diversity, reflecting God's abundant creativity into eternity. Paul wrote in his letter to the Corinthians that we followers of Jesus are one body. We're made up of many parts and all the parts of the body are of equal value. And as I mentioned five weeks ago, when our Sunday service included a conversation with three of our black members following the brutal killing of George Floyd, when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. We mourn alongside our black brothers and sisters for whom this tragedy awakens their own traumas and the larger history of systemic oppression that still plagues this country. 
If you missed that, you can find the recording of that conversation on the website. That conversation was just a beginning. I believe that it, for us as a church, it's crucial that the issue of racial injustice is something we don't just briefly touch on in response to a news story and then move on from, but something we commit to addressing and working hard towards eradicating in our society, in the church, and in our own individual hearts. Some Christians might um, see this topic as a distraction from our mission to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the world, but justice, racial equality, diversity and unity are very much part of the gospel message, and as such it's our job as his church to defend it, pursue it and proclaim it to the world. What's become apparent in recent weeks is that, is that Debbie and I have not given this issue the attention we should have. The many hours of conversations we've been honoured to have with a number of our black and brown members have opened our eyes to the pain and frustration many feel because there's been such injustice and discrimination. We are really grateful to those who've shared with us because we recognise that uh, even talking, it stirs up painful memories and that's emotionally challenging on top of everything else. Those conversations have also opened our eyes to the reality that we have significant blind spots and we have through those conversations and reading and listening more widely realised that not only is there a white bias within our society but it also is present within our church and as painful as it has been to realise it, we've come to understand that it is present even within our own hearts. And speaking for myself, as a white man, I now realise that I benefit from white privilege, however unconsciously. Debbie and I and our senior leadership team are engaging with this issue, having uh, we've begun a journey of examining our own hearts and reflecting and repenting and looking at how we as a church need to engage as we respond to what we believe the Lord is challenging us with. Now I'm aware as I speak today on this subject I may unintentionally say things which might offend you. I will probably say some things clumsily or show my naivety. I'm certainly not speaking as someone who knows the answers to the challenges that we face. Please hear me as simply wanting to open up a subject which needs to be talked about and please forgive me if I don't say everything exactly as you might hope. So today I want to really talk about this subject under five points. The first of which is this. Racism and racial injustice is part of our history. Many of us will have grown up hearing the story that Britain uh, once had an empire, that the world map like this one from 1950 had been covered in red and we were proud of it. The story that Britain had brought civilization to developing countries in colonies worldwide, but this is a version of our history that overlooks the massive damage that we inflicted on cultures and peoples for the sake of our enormous economic gain. Did you know that up until the late 18th century, the British were the world's largest slave dealers? As a country, we benefited from the profits of that trade and many of the most impressive parts of our cities were built on the vast amounts of money generated. Through the empire, millions of Africans were transported as slaves to the Americas and the Caribbean. 
between the 16th century and 1807, when the Parliament, our Parliament, passed the Slave Trade Act, which outlawed the slave trade. Last week, Debbie and I watched the BBC documentary Britain's Forgotten Slave Owners. Uh, we learned things, things I'd never been taught in school. The way black men, women and children were traded as possessions and the brutality with, with, with which they were treated was utterly sickening. And I recommend you watch that. This part of our national history. This is part of our national history, but it's also part of the history of the British church. Uh, historically, Bible passages were used to justify the practice of slavery. And although God used Christians, many Christians and church leaders, to help bring the slave trade to an end, there were many who were complicit and even contributed to the practice of slavery. Though slavery was fully outlawed in Britain in 1833, racial discrimination was lawfully permitted into my lifetime. I'd started school before the first Race Relations Act was passed in 1965. It's sobering to think that it's only within my lifetime that discrimination against someone on the grounds of colour, race or ethnic or national origins became against the law. In 1948, a ship called the Empire Windrush was the first of many to arrive in Britain carrying hundreds of black people from the West Indies who came in response to an invitation to help rebuild Britain following the Second World War. Being from the Commonwealth, they were British subjects and should have experienced all the rights of that status. But far from being welcomed, they found resistance to their presence and great difficulty in finding housing and anything but very menial jobs, despite many of them being very skilled. Notices in some rental windows, you know, houses, said things like no coloureds and no West Indians. And even, shamefully, many churches told them they were not allowed, they were not welcome. Less than 18 months before I was born, something happened which put Nottingham in the national news, the, the black population was growing as Commonwealth citizens were being actively encouraged to emigrate to Britain. But attitudes towards black and brown people were very negative. In Nottingham's pubs, uh, black people were expected to stand aside until white people had been served. While white resentment of black people and black resentment of that resentment erupted on the 23rd of August 1958 when an altercation in a pub, it spiralled out of control and a thousand people crowded onto St Answell Road. Predominantly young people, white against black, some armed with knives and machetes and cutthroat razors and bottles, clashed. It was reported in the Evening Post and ended with dozens of people injured. The more well-known Notting Hill race riots in London happened a week later. In the aftermath of this explosion, very significant strides were made towards healing the scars and community tensions, but I, I mention it because it was our city, in the lifetime of some of our church members, who lived in Nottingham at that time. Secondly, racism and racial injustice is part of our present. I just mentioned Windrush, 
The landing cards of thousands of those who arrived in Britain in that season were apparently destroyed. Some of those who had arrived applied for passports and papers, but, but not all did. When targets to reduce immigration were brought in, the Home Office sought to establish who had the right to live here. And they wrongfully detained at least 850 people from what is known as the Windrush generation and deported at least 83 of them, despite their apparent right to live here. Just two years ago, the Windrush scandal hit our news as this was exposed. This week, Debbie and I watched the uh, dramatised documentary Sitting in Limbo on BBC iPlayer, which tells the story of Anthony Bryan, someone uh, who was detained among those individuals who'd arrived here. He arrived 50 years previously at the age of eight. And he was told by his employer that they could no longer employ him. He was arrested. He was treated with astonishing disrespect. He spent five weeks in detention, in a detention centre, and was almost deported. And he said this... I lost my job, I lost my home, I lost my freedom, I lost my identity. If we're tempted to think that racism and racial discrimination is something which was prevalent centuries or decades ago, but is long gone, here's a quote from a conversation we had with a very well-read friend, Jordan Prance, commenting on the relatively short time since the Race Discrimination Act of 1965. This is what Jordan said. In no other field of study would you assume that something that, that was systemically present for three or four hundred years would be completely dissipated in 50 years. In a conversation this week with one of my friends who is a black pastor, he told me a number of stories of racial prejudice which are typical of many people's experiences. A black lady who has her own company, she found that she was repeatedly, when she bid for contracts, she rarely, if ever, uh, got through the vetting process. And she decided, partly as an experiment, to use somebody else's white name. And everything immediately changed as the contracts flooded in. This is the experience of many. And it's so expected that he said black people in his church often joke with each other when they hear someone's very African-sounding name, saying, good luck getting a job with that. Thirdly, many of our black and brown sisters and brothers are in pain. The killing of George Floyd nearly seven weeks ago was an event which, for a whole variety of reasons, sparked a reaction around the world. It was one in an ongoing list of brutal killings of black people by white people, and for some it was the last straw. In a conversation Debbie and I had with black church members, some have shared how this event has unearthed generations of pain. In a talk at Holy Trinity Brompton in London, a young woman called Elle Ruth described it this way. Imagine having a wound that never gets the chance to heal. Just as you're healing from the last death of racism, you are pierced with another one. We cannot begin to understand the pain many black and brown people are feeling, but we want you to know that we are, are hearing you, we are grieving with you, and we want to stand with you.
Number four is we want to be part of the solution. We are committed to doing what we can to redress some of the imbalance. For instance, our church's leadership is more white than we believe God wants it to be. Uh, we are so thrilled that over the years, Trent Vineyard has become more ethnically diverse than ever. Our newcomers' events inf- uh, you know, reflect that with many black and brown people being present. But we have to be honest in saying that it's not reflected by our leadership or staff, of whom the great majority are white. We have a lot to learn about developing and releasing people from other ethnic backgrounds into key leadership roles. Debbie and I recognise that it's, it's not good enough to simply say racism is evil. We need to see real change in our society, in our church and in our own lives. And most important, we, we don't want this to be a short term reaction to a media story. Our intentions need to be turned into actions. So we, we really do have some work to do. We've started by listening, having conversations with many of you already uh, to really understand your perspective. And we're planning in the coming weeks to have a listening exercise with a larger group of black, Asian, minority, ethnic members of the church and do that with our senior leadership team. And some of what we hear we know is going to be uncomfortable. That's okay. We want to hear it so that we can reflect and identify anything that might need to change. Alongside this, Debbie and I are part of a national group of churches, of of church movement and denominational leaders. And our friend Pastor Agu, who leads Jesus House in London, is leading us through a process to develop something of a roadmap, which will really help our church and many other churches right across the country. We also recognise that making changes will take time and uh, what we've been doing and will be doing in the coming weeks, months and years will be small steps in a very long journey. Regrettably, we can't promise that no member of Trent Vineyard will ever again experience anything unfair or, or hurtful in the, in the church because of their race. But we can promise that we are committed to that ideal. We anticipate that this journey will feature moments of setback and disappointment for us and for some of you, as well as moments of progress and breakthrough. But we're in this for the long haul. We have an opportunity for real change. In the weeks following the death of George Floyd, Barack Obama said this. As tragic as these last few weeks have been, as difficult, scary and uncertain as they've been, they have been an incredible opportunity for people to be awakened to some of these underlying trends. And they offer an opportunity for us all to work together, to tackle them, to take them on, to change. Society is recognising that something needs to change and the church has a responsibility to be really at the forefront of that. The church is supposed to be a signpost, a, a representation of the new creation where all are welcome. I believe that now is a moment of opportunity for us as a church to really show the world something of the expression of God's kingdom. We the church have made many mistakes in our history but we are convinced that more than any other people group on the planet, the Church of Jesus Christ needs to be a model of God's kingdom, his nature, the beautiful diversity of his creation. Five weeks ago, many of us lit a candle in our homes as a symbol of of grief and hope, and as a pledge to examine our hearts, to listen and to love our neighbours, 
and to speak out against injustice. Today I want to invite each of us to continue on that journey, a journey of lament, of examining our own hearts and coming before God that we would be changed and that our world would be changed. And in the coming days we'll be making available some resources that may help each of us on that journey. The Bible is clear that there should be absolutely no racism, elitism, sexism and every other destructive ism that opposes God's beautiful design for humanity. As we look for to one day joining in with worship with others from every nation, tribe, people and language, let's commit to doing all we can to seeing that expressed in our day, in our nation, in our church and in our own individual lives. <laughs>